0: of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. But today, we have an extra special guest on
1: our podcast. Who is it, Chris? And with us today, we have Ruben Cohen of Lurson Mastering. So welcome to the show, Ruben.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad to be with you guys.
1: Awesome. So we we're going to do a little bit of talking about yeah about mastering and your career and what you do. So sure. hopefully this will be of a lot of interest to our listeners, and I'm sure it will be. Perhaps we can begin by you describing what you do and a little bit about your career and why we're fortunate enough to have you with us here today.
2: Sure. So it's, it's actually becoming more and more rare because so many people wear many hats now more than ever. But we're a mastering house. We're mastering engineers here. I'm a mastering engineer. And it's really all I've ever done professionally the whole time. I'm about 16 years in, so that makes me 35. And I started when I was about 18 or 19 uh, at the Mastering Lab, which was the first independent mastering studio outside of the labels that was ever went out and, and created a business. Doug Sachs in the late 60s created the Mastering Lab and really evolved the foundation of what mastering became and certainly what it was back then. I can talk a little bit about that. But essentially what mastering is, is the final process in the recording process. It happens right after mixing, I'll digress, when a, a, traditional, a traditional rock record, hypothetically, you're recording all your individual elements within the mix, your bass, drums, guitar, vocals, and you're tracking everything, you're recording everything. And in the mixing stage, that happens after that, you are weaving all of those elements together to create this beautiful blend. And then a mastering engineer takes that beautiful blend, let's say it's in stereo, generally it is, even we can talk a whole lot about that, but traditionally it's in stereo these days, and a mastering engineer will process those stereo channels left and right and optimize them further to create the end result. Uh, And that can mean a whole lot of different things. But generally, to really water it down, it means ultimate connection to the music, whatever you need to do to create the most connective end result possible from the artist to the listener, and then knowing when to step away and not do anything further. So that is really what it is. Some people describe it as Photoshop to audio. Uh, (laughs) It can be thought of that way. Some people just talk about it as global processing in audio, finalizing. And for me, it is all of those things, but it really is ultimate connection with the artist and the listener.
1: Interesting. I'm glad you sort of expanded on that because one of the things that I wanted to bring up, and I think today it's people have a little bit of a misconception, in my opinion, of what mastering is. Because I think in the age of the DAW that we tend to live in here, it seems like some people are just, oh, I'm mastering when you're just slapping an L1 on your master bus, right? (laughs) And just kind of cranking the snot out of it. So when you describe what you do, how much do you feel like that role has changed today from, well, even from obviously from when you started, right? We've gone through the loudness wars and we've done all of this kind of thing. And you kind of hinted at surround and atmos type of thing in there, but we're traditionally dealing with stereo information here but what would you say to somebody that just think oh i'm just going to master my own track and what they're really doing is like is that like putting an l1 or an l3 on the master buzz and how that's that's not really what mastering does and i think does give the whole idea of mastering a disservice because it's a lot more than that would you
2: agree to that or it can be but in order to go that far down deep down the rabbit hole, you kind of have to be doing it for such a long time and experience so many different mixes. And the position of the mixing engineer mastering their own material, they're only seeing what they're working on and they're not objective to it. And I can even go further down the road of, their process in and of itself has changed so much even the last 10 years, in terms of blurring the processes between mixing and mastering. So much much of my job is figuring out how the, the sausage was made before it even shows up uh, In, to us. In other words, <laughs> are you um, are you mixing into that L2 or that uh, that limiter? Is that part of your mix? Have you been monitoring and making all of your musical balance decisions while monitoring through that limiter? Or are you mixing as you do and then you throw it on only for your artist completely independent of your mix balances? That alone has so much to do with how we even begin when we receive mixes. But you know, ma- mastering is is always gets the award for the most misunderstood process. It's very esoteric. <laughs> it takes it takes uh, it requires you sitting in front of, you know, or just being in this position for many many years. Hopefully, learning from somebody that's been doing it for many many years, that can really help you go very far down the road, without getting in your own way. Because I feel like I'm already standing on the shoulders of giants. Gavin was feeling like he was standing on the shoulders of giants because he got to learn from Doug, and Doug, you know, decades of trial and error and trying this versus that and best practices were developed based off that. So it's almost such an advantage to just start from that point, and that's where Gavin started. And of course, technology and the way that we even ingest music has changed all through that and evolved. So all of Doug's years, all of Gavin's years, and then I started in 2005 just mastering, I got to stand on those combined shoulders, allows me to really, really just focus on from here forward.
0: So you started, uh, you went to MI. And both Chris and I also attended MI at very okay, different yeah. times and for very, I'm assuming different reasons. I went for guitar. Uh-huh. Chris went for uh-huh. guitar and guitars, keyboards. Yeah. You went, what did you go to MI for? Did you go for fun, fun, recording or did you do something else?
2: Funny enough, I was also guitar. I started out in GIT and then transferred from GIT over to RIT, okay, which right. was the recording program. And I figured at the time that I could actually have the best of both worlds. This was when I was, you know, 18 because I could do all the open counseling guitar clinic workshops outside of the curriculum. You know, you kind of show up, it's volunteer right. based. And then I could have my core curriculum in the recording major. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, I found that that was the best path for me. That gave me the foundation, just the fundamentals of the basic concepts and the ideas, but really my schooling felt like it started at the mastering lab when I started my internship in 2005. And then about a year after that, we started Lursen Mastering in 2006.
1: Then you started so, with how, Gavin.
2: Yeah. Yes.
1: What was that road for you? Because I know of very few people and the might say more about me than it does about anything else, <laughs> but very few people th- that sort of had the intention of going into mastering. What, yes. what was that decision process it, for you? Was it something that you sort of fell into or was it something that you had a goal to sort of it, focus primarily on mastering?
2: It started as something that I fell into and then it turned into something that I had more of a goal, or at least it was seduced by it along the way. Because I think (laughs) it's one of those things where, especially in that time, this is at the same time where the Pro Tools mbox was just beginning to enter the home, you Mm -hmm. know? So, so much was changing. Mastering tools, they were just beginning to, digital mastering tools for people working inside the box, were just starting to be developed. The idea of, doing mastering by yourself was very, very just unheard of and very discouraged. Certainly, you know, you had to go to a place. So understanding mastering further than just that wasn't available to us. We could maybe go to Mix Magazine and read some articles or some interviews, but nobody could experience this until you were in a studio. So the idea of even beginning to understand what mastering was or, or having a calling towards it just didn't exist. You kind of had to hang out and see if you resonated with it. And that's what it was for me. I just, knew that I wanted to be in the studio. I was fascinated by it. I made it my business to be the first person there and the last person to leave every day, not because I was trying to prove myself to anybody or anything like that, but just I just wanted to be there. I just wanted to eat it all up. And through that, I became more and more fascinated with it and, and found myself in it over the years. But it's not a thing that just happens overnight. This is a years and years and years long seduction. <laughs> sure.
1: That's a good way to sure. put yeah. it, yeah. Yeah. seduction. <laughs> Right. Did you ever have, though, before you went into that, did you have the idea of, you mentioned you playing guitar, to sort of be the the guitar playing artist and sort of like mix your own stuff? Or was it always looking a little bit further down the road of going into the mastering thing that you said that you kind of fell into? But
2: Yeah, I knew I wanted to do, I wanted to be in music in some way. Originally, probably as anybody does, they wanted to maybe be a rock star, uh, sure. you know, producer of some sort. And it really just in a place that I just found that to be my calling along the way. It wasn't really planned. It just I just ended up gravitating towards it through yeah. the work. Yeah, yeah. It. Very cool. Yeah.
0: So I have a question for you here. You come out of school, you start learning mastering with Gavin. How long after that start happens that you get hired to work on happy? One of the oh. biggest songs in so long it's ridiculous by Pharrell. How did that happen?
2: It's a long road of peaks and valleys and getting gigs and keeping confidence and, and, and all the ups and downs. I think most of these stories happen kind of by accident a lot of the times. I was just working on a lot of records. It didn't start out like I had, there was never one first record. I was assisting, I was assisting and you kind of blur into it and all of a sudden you find yourself working on records by yourself. And I was working on a lot of film soundtracks, film and TV soundtracks for NBC Universal and and I did the first Despicable Me movie and the second Despicable Movie soundtrack. Pharrell was very much involved. He had a lot of songs on these on these soundtracks and one of them was happy. And it was really just part of it. I, as soon as I heard it, I knew it was special. I remember uh, actually Gavin's stepdaughter in the other room dancing and she was probably four years old at the time. <laughs> and I thought, this is working, you know? Yeah, that's a good sign. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and it actually had a delayed, it kind of went to radio and it wasn't until the music video was released until it really, really exploded online and became this huge sensation and biggest song of the year of 2013 so i don't know to come back to you know that wasn't i'd I'd worked on big songs before that as well but i think that's definitely been the biggest song because it was the biggest song of that year sure uh 2013. yeah
1: how would you say i'm jumping all over the place here a little bit but the process of mastering because you've done a lot of like soundtrack stuff as well like for you know not just movies but hbo and the type of thing and. How different is that process for you where you're mastering, let's say, an album, like a pop album or, or something in that vein, versus the work on a soundtrack? Is that drastically different for you? Are there different things that you have to keep in mind when you're thinking, I'm assuming, like dynamic range, that, that type of thing, frequency spectrum, or do you find that it's relatively similar?
2: similar in the sense that the objective and the discipline is the same. The, mm-hmm. the thought process is the same. The way we approach the music is consistent, but the music is not. The music is whatever it ends up being. And it's its own signature thumbprint every day. So one of the biggest things, regardless of genre or arrangement, is dynamic range. How far something reaches, mm-hmm. uh, how dense is something. And also a musical sixth sense develops, you know, that is beyond words, it's, it's kind of an internal understanding and your, your intuition is developed through this because you hear every type of mix or any way a mix can come together. Sometimes it's more virtual, sometimes it's very aggressive, sometimes very dense pop arrangement, EDM very aggressively compressed in the elements themselves, also sometimes compressed on the bus. That could be on one side of the spectrum in terms of ultra dense, hyped thing. And then you can have a very naturally open recording recorded orchestral arrangement real orchestra with you're hearing the room you're hearing the the way all of the elements are are coming together within the hall itself or the you know where it's being recorded must be approached much differently yet the intent is the same you're creating ultimate connection so how far to push something how far to dynamically process something or how far to not dynamically process something has everything to do with our process and then with that EQing as part of that so EQ has a shape. To kind of go a little further, maybe a 12-song album, doesn't matter the genre, shows up on our desk one day. We don't even know. It, could, it can be pop, but that can mean a super hyped thing or it can be more of a relaxed open thing. You know, it, it all exists. You put it on, you listen to the mixes, you get a sense of what it is, and the music does all the talking. It does most of the communicating. You want to be able to catch that musical wave and see it through to the end. A good mastering engineer will immediately have that, that sense of where something can exist in its finished form and then they'll start putting things up on the board. We work analog, so either they're putting something up on their computer screen (laughs) or they're working analog, which we still do and like to, and I can talk about that too. But as you start massaging things into place, I'd say within the first, at least for us, maybe 90% of getting there happens rather quickly. And the last 10% is where most of the time takes, fine tuning, really, really narrowing in on where you want everything to sit, balance-wise. And the mix tells you how far or what to do. And then along the way, as you start putting things on the board, that informs your your decisions even further. You know, you kind of test things. You push things a little too far. You feel the resistance. You pull it back. You feel it expand. You fine tune, like kind of, you know, when you're making that fine point with the magnifying glass, you're kind of tilting it all directions until it creates this little pinpoint. That's kind of a way to think about it in a way in terms of balancing. I'm sure it's the same way with mixing. The reason being is that everything that you do when you're working globally affects everything else. Sure. Um, yeah. it's not like you can just uh, independently affect one thing and nothing else has changed even if you do something like mo- a little bit of multiband hypothetically a little sliver of something that affects everything else so sure. it's having not this like global sense yes
0: a vocal in the middle of a stereo mix and have it not affect everything else
2: yeah so you have to think you have to think a little bit more i suppose multifaceted if you will like, and develop the sensibility to play chess instead of checkers doing five moves to create a, a end result that actually feels less processed than maybe one move would do in a different sense. In other words, what it really comes down to is creating this end result that just feels ultimately connected. So a lot of times people think that mastering is this corrective process. In other words, we have this mindset of putting up a mix and thinking, okay, what's wrong with this? And if I can figure out, if I can, if I can I it depends on just the fix all the, fi- <laughs> yeah, or if I can just fix all the wrongness of it, then it'll be right enough to then not do anything else which is very limiting actually. That's often the understanding of mastering is it's a corrective process only, versus let's hear this mix, now in our mind's eye, let's project where this could, could live in its most optimum place, and let's take it there. And that could mean actually going well outside of where it currently is, and so you can arrive at that place, or it can mean a fraction of nothing, and it's more just feel. And a good mastering engineer will be able to determine how much or how little to inject themselves and what is net positive versus not so much, you know? Because you can, you can end up getting happy and realize that you've actually been off the mark and come back the next day and completely beat yourself and really take it to a much better place. And that's as much as, much as part of the process as anything else, developing that internal sense of where something is really, really feeling like it really hits all the marks. That's so much an of that is just
0: mindset that you're describing there, though, because a lot of people yeah. do think that mastering is that. Oh, mastering is where they're going to set that level, they're going to lop all the tops off and make it loud, and it's just going to correct all the problems that the mix already had. It's a very different mindset, and it's a good mindset. I like that.
2: There's ways around it. In other words, if there's something wrong with your not wrong, if there's something out of balance, not quite gelling with your mix. Maybe it's got too much bottom end. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going to be very very simple here. Maybe this is the bottom end. Maybe it was mixed in a place where the Environment where the mixing engineer thought that they had their room was telling them to add more bottom than they really should be and it sounds balanced in their room We put it up here Everything is balanced, but it's also globally not balanced. In other right. words, if I do one big stroke I'm essentially correcting for their room versus their mix right now the first thing uh, So what I'm hearing is off is actually I'm hearing their room not their musical decisions Now the obvious thing to do there would be to start cutting away bottom right but a good mastering engineer will size up all of everything that's going on in the arrangement, the relationship of the elements within the arrangement, and it could be that they actually do the opposite. They end up opening up the top. But maybe based off what's happening in the arrangement when they open up the top, it exposes the vocal in a way that's not so flattering. So maybe you gotta do maybe a little bit of high frequency limiting on that vocal. And now as you're opening up the top, that's pushing back against you, and that's influencing you in real time to shape the bottom a little differently according to what's coming out of the speakers. And this is mastering. You know, kind of talking conceptually, but you're dealing with all of these things, all of these processes that are interrelating, all as one to create this process that actually hopefully feels very non-processed and very musical and uh, natural, if that's what you're trying to bring. Other times, we'll throw a mix through some saturator and really get (laughs) dirty and gritty because that was the intent. But even that feels natural and musical when we do that based off what was presented to us. So I can just go ramble on about all these different scenarios, but... At the end of the day, we are always trying to bring that, in other words, we're bringing that connectivity, whatever that means for whatever's brought to us.
0: So when you yeah. say you're running through something like a saturator, that yeah. almost instantaneously, I think a lot of people are gonna listen to say, oh, that just means run some sort of distortion or saturation plug on my DAW. But you mentioned analog. So how yeah. are you doing that analog wise?
2: Well, there's, there's so many ways you can do it. You know, you can have a little bit of tube saturation and that could be just a little bit of, I don't know, I like, I think of it as like peach fuzz. You know, mm-hmm. it's just a little, a little bit of that, you know, we, all, we know it as tube, tube saturation. Or you can go really heavy handed and go through, I like to use this overstayer MAS harmonic enhancer, which really creates a lot of character. And really it's a kind of a way, at least the way I use it is to get a whole lot of hype without compressing. Cause mm-hmm. it's a way of compressing without anything moving. It's like a densifier and it's an expander. It's kind of like expands outward as it pushes back at the same time. And so I'll use that for various scenarios. A lot of times, and I could talk a whole lot about this, I use it when somebody mixes into heavy bus processing, but they're not actually happy with their heavy bus processing because it feels very processed. Yet they found their balances because they mixed into it, so they're kind of married to that. And if they take it off or lessen it or back it off to any degree, their mix kind of spreads out and falls apart. This is actually not a good scenario to be in, but (laughs) it is a scenario that we find ourselves... Dealing with, quite often, based off the way people make records these days, kind of mixing and mastering at the same time. So I find that a lot of times if, sometimes if somebody mixes heavy into something on the bus and then removes it or lessens it, I can re-slam it (laughs) with this that ends up kind of putting the car in reverse and goes around into a different lane and ends up musically being something that's the best way to go about handling this particular scenario. Just for the record, this is actually, in many ways, not the best way that is already uh, introducing a little bit of compromise, even though we might end up with something really great. And I could talk a whole lot about this because it's something that quite that happens quite a lot. In other words, people mixing into a whole lot of bus processing, even though they're not happy doing it, removing it, making a disconnect from the order of events, and then going around and having me re-slam it. It can be done, and it, we do do it, and a lot of people are put in that position, in, in our position. It's never the best way, but it can be a way if that's the best way available to you. Right. Um, the best way I find is to mix just the way that you want to mix and without any type of compromises, in other words, not having to force anything, just mix musically the best way that you're able to do it. Hand that to a mastering engineer with no change at all. Have them master it from that place. No altering it for a mastering engineer based off how you mixed a straight shot, mix, master. That always is the best way.
0: Let's bring up the example of Metallica <laughs> when they uh-huh. had that. Apparently the mixes were slammed already to the hilt where there was no room left to do the mastering job, so to speak. Is that still uh-huh. a recommendation or would you say, Hey, no, maybe you guys ought to back this off before you give it to us.
2: The whole idea. And I, and I work, I work a lot on, on that band. So I'm familiar with that, but I won't, I won't talk about that particular <laughs> scenario, <laughs> but I'll talk about this scenario in general. When somebody pushes something too far, Sure, it usually has to do with somebody Okay, well, when you push something too far on a bus, the bus can be a crutch. It can give you that instant gratification because it's just squeezing everything for you. Meaning you don't have to squeeze everything up until that point as much because it's doing it all for you. And it's usually a way to get pretty far with less amount of time. That's what I find. I also find that when people do that, they feel like they can remove that and have me go around and do it better than they did it. I always find that when you do that, that introduces a level of compromise because of what I just said. So there is some... there is some shortcomings around that. That being said, there's a lot of people that mix heavy into bus processing and they really know what they're doing and it's very, very musical and they've got that down. And they're kind of mixing in a kind of mastering and mixing at the same time to some degree, and at least conceptually because they're leaning so heavy onto that bus. The best case scenario is to use that for mastering, I've found, and not alter that and maybe back off the limiter because that is musically baked in dynamically, the relationships of the elements within the mix is all as the mixer heard it. And if you remove a limiter at that point, you're skewing those relationships. Sure. And then you're right. kind of re-putting them back together with some extra character and some extra whatever we bring as all together. It's like I said, it can work, but it's always not as good as, a, as the straight shot situation. And people are at a disadvantage because this is what happened. I saw this maybe 10 years ago. Mixing engineers would mix the way they mixed and they wouldn't be worried about level, but they were worried about keeping their artist happy to keep the gig. And so they'd mix it, and then they'd throw on a, a limiter just for their artist, right? Just to right. get it up to level to kind of simulate what mastering was going to do. But it wasn't their mix. It, sometimes the, the artist would actually never hear their actual mix. They'd hear their mix with a little bit of limiting on top of that. And so when it came time for the date of mastering, all they had to do was remove the limiter. They were back to their mix. We take their mix just as they mixed it, master it from that point, beat their reference, because it's pretty easy to beat because we're... we're specialists in this process and what they had was just a level limiter so we can introduce all this musicality and everything that people know us to bring and that worked so that spread around the industry and everybody said oh when it comes to mastering remove your limiter why would you want that limiter there it's they're going to be able to (laughs) relimit it in a better way now here's where it got confusing if you're mixing into the limiter and you remove it it's not the same situation at all and not enough people talk about this Because all of your musical decisions were based in the mixing stage were based off what that limiter was doing. And you're relating musically while monitoring through that limiter. So if you remove it, you're actually taking a departure. You're not actually giving the mastering engineer something better, unless you've mixed into a place of where that limiter's not really serving the music and it's actually feeling pretty processed. Because it's so easy to keep pushing up your elements against this limiter that's in a static place. You just want to push up, push up, push up. And you can look on the screen and say, oh, well, that limiter is only doing a dB of work. (laughs) It's not actually. All of that level that you're pushing up into that dB of work is doing a lot more than you think. So if you hit bypass on that limiter, you're really taking a departure from your mix. And that can show up as X. It can show up and it can work out nine times out of 10. And then that one time, based off how that individual mixed into that limiter or something more than a limiter, can totally take a departure and not work. And this is something that's very much not understood. Only mastering engineers really understand this because we're in this in this chair every day. So we see it, We see everybody. And that's just something that I've, I've noticed. So what I try to preach out there, and I have these conversations quite a bit about mixing into bus processing, is as you're mixing into bus processing, know that you're getting more and more married to that. And that is something that you're working up musically. And to bypass that before mastering, just be aware that that's what's gonna happen. If you do that, you're gonna alter your balances. And one solution that can work for some people is to mix as they mix and not having to, not worry about level. And do it the old way is a good solution if you want the ultimate, if you're gonna be using a mastering engineer. Mix as you normally would mix, throw on a limiter just for your artist. But if your artist has notes, don't address the notes with the limiter on it. Take the limiter back off. Address the notes, throw it back on just the way you had it, make sure the notes hold. That way when it comes to time for mastering, you can take off this limiter, which it sounds, you know most people don't want on there for us anyway. And we're really working from something that they did without any departure. And this is kind of complicated stuff. It's funny, I, I talk to a lot of people and I have to talk about it maybe three or four times before they really get it. Okay. It makes uh, good
1: sense though. I, 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 yeah. 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 Because it. it is that, I mean, it, it's a little bit of almost like I can compare it to, it might sound like a dumb comparison, but when you're talking about demoitis, you get so married to a certain sound of the song where it's just like you've just thrown shit up and just to, to have the song down, right? And then when you start actually mixing it, it's like, oh, it, it, it sounds odd. Now, you're describing to me what I think is, is very much the same way. You get used to a certain sound because you got a limiter on your master bus. And then when you actually remove that, and like you said, everything that's been pushed up against it now sits differently in the mix, so we have to be careful and I think knowing why you're doing something as well is of, of vital importance, right? It's one thing to just want to make something loud and it's all loud and crunchy and but it's not necessarily a true representation of what your mix really sounds like. And uh, and then I think you get yourself into trouble that way. So.
2: It is your mix that becomes yeah. your mix and it's not even so much about getting used to something and then having to get used to getting used to something else while you've been kind of in this demo-itis place, all of your decisions along the way have painted to this canvas. In other words, if you didn't have that on there to begin with, or you had something different, you would have made different decisions to paint to that canvas. Hmm. So it's all about how it influences the music balancer, the mixer, in real time along the way, as it happens step by step. And if you are painting on that canvas and then you switch the angle or the canvas itself, you're musically taking that departure. So anyway, I can... Yeah, it's something yeah, that no, I, but I, I... It yeah. is
0: very, very interesting. So yeah. it is very interesting. And we'll jump right back on this after a word from our sponsors. And we're back. We're going to continue talking with Ruben here. I want to bring up something that we kind of glossed over. I don't know where in your timeline you won the Grammy for Distinto. And did I say that correctly?
2: Destinto, yeah. Distinto, um, okay. I, th- I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Oh well, that was what, 2010, I think. Okay. So it was like 11 years ago now. Yeah,
0: yeah. Wow. And how did that feel to like, win a Grammy?
2: Oh, it was pretty surreal. I was really young. <laughs> I think I was 23. It was actually. I'm glad it happened early on because it's a fun show. But then it kind of just goes back to your daily work after it's. Right. You know, it's good for <laughs> your. It's good for your your parents' bragging rights. You know. <laughs> right. And it's good for business. You know, it gives some extra confidence. It it, it shows that. But it's funny because. We work on so many great records that don't see the light of day, right. that are completely eligible for all of the praise and accolades. It's good for business. It's a, all of those things. But for me personally, it's, uh, it's just about working on music every day. It's working with people, being in the uh, ability to create something really great and continually surprise yourself. It's all of those things that really drive me forward. So.
0: Okay, so here's another odd question. I looked up some of the credits that you have, and then on a particular website that's supposed to be the be-all, end-all of music credits on recordings, it has listed you. And I'm wondering if there's another Ruben Cohen who is a mastering engineer, because apparently there was a mastering engineer that mastered the jellyfish stuff. And I'm assuming that wasn't you.
2: No, it was. Oh, it um, was you? Sometimes with reissue work, oh. they will date the original date of when it was originally released. Ah. So yes, yes. Those records are so special, aren't they? Oh, well, two it's, yeah.
0: We actually dedicated a whole episode to that. And we still have oh, really? people that will like comment on the episode saying, oh my God, somebody actually referenced this album. It's like my favorite thing ever. And of course, it is two of my favorite records ever. And I have pretty much everything ever released by Jellyfish and members uh-huh. thereof, including Imperial drag demos. So,
2: okay. We did a lot of, uh, I think uh, this was probably about 10 years ago. Gavin and I both worked on these. There was some, uh, you know, rare, you know, demos and, you know, radio performances and stuff like that. For we the did, four box set? Oh, I'm trying to remember now. I don't know how it was released now. It was a while back. But I know we did, we remastered both those albums at
0: 192.
2: Oh, wow. So, um Yep. And uh, and there was a lot of live stuff that went along with that too sure. around those years. I'm not sure how it was released, but okay. yeah, ama- amazing. I think we just added another hour to the <laughs> podcast. Jody's going to pick your brain. Yeah, out. I got to oh, really? pick <laughs> brain on this because
0: I do know that Roger and Andy recorded some of that stuff digitally speaking. So usually they say whatever your original sample rate is, if you go higher than that, it's really not helping you. But you just said you went and did that at 192. And I'm assuming at the time they recorded those in the 90s, you're probably talking 44.116 bit.
2: Could be, could be. I I think we got 192 digital files to work from. How those were derived, I don't know, but it definitely didn't sound all digital. It sounded very analog. So, it could be a mixture of the two, you know? Yes, there's no reason to upsample. you're only going to negatively affect something just by going through the process of sample rate converging, anything from anything else. I don't like sample rate conversion, I try to avoid it as much as possible. In fact, one of the big benefits of working analog and mastering is you can completely not have to go through sample rate conversion. Because we have an analog process between us, so you can play back at whatever sample rate on your playback side, convert it from digital to analog. And then on the back end, on your capture side, you can record in at whatever sample rate you want. So for instance, we do a lot of reissue work. We Talk about Metallica, I, I, maybe about, I don't know, four or five years ago now, I redid Injustice for All from the original analog tapes, okay. and we mastered it twice. We mastered it for vinyl, right off the analog tapes through the console to 96, and that was for vinyl and then separately directly to 44 for all of the platforms and and including the CD release. So no sample rate conversion at all, just straight shot in captured at whatever the uh, resolution was needed for the master deliverable.
0: That brings up a question for me in my mind, because I have talked to another mastering engineer here who works down on the Sony lot and he does one master for all. And you're talking about a master for vinyl, a master for digital, et cetera. Do you, prefer doing different masters because of the format that it's going to or how does that work for you guys
2: so in terms of balance in terms of musical balance decisions mm-hmm. we find that if you have a good cutter those musical balance decisions will translate no matter if it's coming off vinyl or if it's coming off cd or the streaming platforms the musical intent the balances themselves is very much all about the musicality and it'll translate and it's, it's something actually that doug Sachs would preach. Something One master would for say. all is what you're saying? <laughs> Never EQ for a format is ah, what he used to say, Okay. Mm-hmm. which kind of is another way of just saying the same thing. In other words, bringing your best musicality, bringing your balance, your balances, that will translate. Now if you take a mix and you process it outside of where the mix kind of wants to be or was intended by the mixer and you push something further, there's no reason to do that. First off, you know, especially now, So when we come up with something in a finished form and we say this is deemed as done and everybody approves, uh, that's going to translate pretty darn well. But if you go outside of that and you try to make something, force something outside and push it to a place of where maybe it sounds like another album that was maybe mixed for that in terms of hype, and you go to vinyl, it's usually not going to translate very well. It's going to feel like you're hearing the processing before the music. And that's something that we always try to avoid. So as long as you are approaching this process from a very n- natural and holistic place, even if you end up with something that's very digital and hyped because of the way the mix is, maybe an EDM song, the intent of the mastering engineer is to bring that. Uh, usually it's gonna translate without any issue. And in fact, the, the work kind of speaks for itself because I mean, how many records have we done at this point? It's tens of thousands or something like that. And we, we approach every single one of them with that, that intention and they all sound great out there. We've never had one issue like that. So you can EQ one in terms of your balances and it'll translate. Now, some projects, it's very common and very accepted to master to high res 9624 hypothetically and have all of your individual releases be derived from that big file. That is generally how things work. That is very much accepted around the industry. And if you're working digitally, that's really all you can do. Because you're mastering digitally maybe your mixes at 96 you're mastering digitally and you go through sample rate conversion on the back end to 44 whatever is needed for all of the various releases one benefit that can be realized if you have to master something twice when you're dealing with analog is to capture it twice and go through all the editing twice and all of the you know special edits that might you have to make two identical masters from two different things one high res one lower lower res and not all projects call for that because it's double the mastering, you know, in terms of their budgets and timeline. But it's something that can be done if you're working analog, and sometimes some projects uh, allow for that.
0: So your analog board must have some sort of automation to it, is that correct, to be able to do that or no?
2: No, there's no automation on the board. All the automation that we do is by hand. So we'll be writing knobs musically from section to section. But what we would do is literally just set the uh, capture interface to whatever sample rate and bit depth we want to capture at. It's just a separate setup. so You don't have to automate that. You just set it, you set so it So you run more than
0: one interface at the same time to capture those. No,
2: it, w- it would be two separate sittings. In other words, what generally the way that would work is we'd send out the 96k on one day, hmm. maybe there'd be some back and forth, you know, maybe there's a mix update, maybe, maybe there's a mastering note, maybe there's whatever it could be. We get a final approved 96k version. We have all our notes documented and then on a separate day, we just recall everything and print it at 44. so it wouldn't be a a two computer recording you we actually have set up for that in the past this is a very this is not so common that we do two captures for one project right but but it is possible we have the ability to do that too okay yeah
1: we're getting into the weeds here with a lot of super interesting stuff here and i I just wanted to really make a point here about what it does to have a quality person do your mastering, as opposed to a lot of these, without naming any names, services that that are online now where you just, oh, upload your track for and we're mastered for five bucks. Right, right. Next time you're thinking about mastering your song, keep that in mind. Okay? <laughs> so it, it does make a difference. I, I don't want to shit on anybody here but there obviously is a huge difference when you have a person uh, sitting in front of the board and and making all these human decisions to kind of make the best out of the music where it can be right
2: yeah and it's not to say that ai mastering is certainly a solution for a lot of situations if somebody doesn't have the time or budget to get something up to essentially where something kind of needs to live something like that could be very useful what we do is very much a human process. It's, a, it's the same way uh, a musician plays an instrument. You know, there's, there's something beyond even the musician in terms of understanding. It has to do with intuition that's beyond words or really it's just more of an internal understanding and in what you can bring. It's very, very complicated and complex and very much a musical process. So that's what we bring in this. Right. Uh, I don't know that a machine can ever do what a human could do in that way, but it's only getting better And we are very much interested in that world too. And we've developed software. It's not AI software, but it's mastering software that's very much developed off our go-to ways about processing audio. It's a plugin called the LMC by IK Multimedia. And it was kind of the idea behind that tool was to kind of inform the user. And there is some AI in there in a sense, because as you work with it, it works with you to make sure that you don't roll a gutter ball. You know, it kind of keeps (laughs) you on the straight and narrow. And it allows you to create something that's pretty darn great fairly easily because it's kind of like Instagram to audio. You know, you, you try to color correct it. In, you know, it's very intuitive. You know, I could teach my grandmother how to do that with very little, <laughs> you know, technical knowledge and she could probably get it looking pretty good. That's what this tool does too. So I still feel that to really get something great, you do need a, a human being to be steering the the ship a little bit. But that's kind of... a that tool is something that kind of does a little bit of both because there's a lot of what we bring underneath the hood. So as soon as you push up into it, you're kind of getting what we would bring to some degree just by right. default. Yeah. You know, you yeah. don't even have to understand it. It happens. So,
1: so I have one more question here, Jody. Yeah, like right ahead. Well, I'm still thinking about it. Obviously, you generally work with a certain level of clientele, shall we say? So you're, I'm assuming you're, you're used to getting a certain standard of mixes that when you come in. But what would you say that is the most common issue, shall we say, when you get mixes from perhaps not the top level guys that that you have to master? What what are the common issues that you find that yourself might have to correct for or perhaps even go back to the mix engineer and go, hey, you know what, you'd be better off to adjust this before we try to get to mastering.
2: Sure, sure. Well, by the way, we work on big projects with a lot of marketing and, and awareness around them. But we work on a lot of projects that are independently done that don't have the marketing or awareness around them. And we're not alone. Most mastering houses We're more music is being made now than ever before. Yeah. And most, most of the music doesn't have the marketing behind it yet. There's so much of it. So. That is the state of the mastering business, certainly, and it's been that way for a long time. It's not just big projects done by people that have a lot of experience. We work with everybody, anybody on this side. A lot of people assume that we don't work on, on uh, projects that are maybe people starting out and, and things like that, but we work, we're open to work with anybody. One thing that I do see that is kind of a common thing that I have to navigate with people is kind of what I was talking uh, a little about before. People leaning on the bus too much, even though they feel like they, they should remove that for us and the disconnects that can happen along the way with that. I think we've already talked a lot about that, but that's certainly something. Okay. And then, of course, um, another thing is when somebody somebody mixes into a bus and then changes that bus halfway through, and now they've skewed everything, and now they're kind of—it's almost like when you bend, like bend a, a spoon and you try to bend it back— it's weakened,
1: <laughs> right? you or know, what?
2: I mean, that's, that's <laughs> exactly like, it's become more, you, it's not back to where it was. It's kind of, uh, you know, you're, you're seeing the, the, the issue around, not just, I mean, it's kind of a strange analogy, but that's kind of one way to think about it, you know, or sh- shaking an Etch-a-Sketch is another way, you know, you're losing what you're doing because you're changing it along the way. So I've kind of found that in my own process and I see it as a consistency being on this end of where people kind of shoot themselves a little bit in the foot. I find that if I process something before the console and I maybe EQ something with a plugin to a mix and then I master that, I'm never in as good of a place as if I do all of that as one thing. In other words, I'm working with the mix maybe a little digitally and sometimes I do this and then I'm working with it on the console. If I do all of it at once, in other words, throw it on the console, get kind of there, then go over to digital, kind of fine tune it there, not separate these things as two independent processes, but do it as all together, I'll always come up with something that feels just better and more natural because it's this global one move. Many right. moves as one move, not right. parting it out into slivers of that. There's so much that's sacred and very, very to the music's advantage to have a mixing stage and then a mastering stage and have those two things be very defined. <laughs> where there have is, we
0: thought it, of that before?
2: <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that's tried and it just works and it's great. Here's where it doesn't work so much which is a little bit confusing and I've had this, this has been proven to me over and over again. Somebody mixes it, they get happy with their mix, then they throw it through another process and that brings them a little further towards mastering and they get this instant gratification. Maybe it's a tape emulation plugin. And they say, wow, this sounds great, I really love this. And then I master that, not even knowing that something before this tape plugin exists (laughs) because maybe the communication, maybe they forgot, this happens quite often. And then maybe I'll master that whole record that way, thinking that that's what the mix is. And then I'll get the original mixes. This has happened without that process, the way it was mixed to begin with. That's generally always gonna beat it. Hmm. Even though the person got this instant gratification by adding this little inter, you know, this sliver of processing in between the mixing and mastering, thinking that they're helping themselves. I would actually, and this is very conceptually based, I'll probably be able to do that in a better way because maybe, maybe their mixes were a little dark and they threw it through something and it brightened them up a little bit. It would be better if I did all the brightening on this end as one big process. So what I'm really leading to is it's such a benefit to have a defined mixing stage and a defined mastering stage and not all of these little creative things in between. That sure. people, right. usually, sure. usually that doesn't help anything except for take a departure in some way, or it gets you that, it's like a two steps forward, one step back kind of situation versus just three steps forward.
0: Well, that makes good sense. That makes really good sense. And we've actually discussed that multiple times where very definitive stages in the recording process where you have your tracking phase, try not to mix during your tracking phase, and then you have your mix phase. And then as you're saying, try not to master during your mix phase, and then you go to your mastering phase.
2: And you know, it kind of goes back to what I was saying. If you, let's say, and this just happened not so long ago, when somebody mixed their album, got happy, and then threw on a tape emulation plugin, it would have been totally different if that tape emulation plugin was on their bus as they mixed. Then that would have probably worked out just fine. Sure. Because when you put that on there, you're actually skewing your balances. You wouldn't have ended up, I've said this already, you wouldn't have ended up in that place if those order of events were different. These are advanced concepts that you have to live to learn and somebody in, in our position, being at the very bottleneck end, sees all of it. Yeah. And with YouTube be- becoming the the new mentor versus a, <laughs> an individual that's yeah. been sitting in front of speakers for decades, and that's all they've ever done, the way that this knowledge is really passed is to just live it and experience it. And then, and then it really becomes in your, it's in your bones at that point. It's beyond your understanding, it's just, it's a knowing. And a lot of times I'll say these types of things to people and they'll say, okay, yeah, I wonder, because they haven't lived it. They haven't experienced sure. it. They kind of think, well, maybe that I have to try this to see if it works. And they end up usually finding that out, you know. But anyway. you, cr- yeah, you But, have but to that's li-
1: the same. But, I mean, I'm a dad, right? So I, I have a teenage daughter. And it, and it's one of those things that you, as a parent, you can tell your children usually don't do this, right? It's going to end up badly. But it doesn't make sense until they actually have to go through that process and, yeah. and learn for themselves why it's a bad thing, right? And the same thing goes for, here again, your, your two-bus processing, right? It's generally not a bad idea if you're too aggressive and doing all this kind of stuff. But one thing I wanted to touch on as well is I know you, we've talked about this, Jody, yep. when it comes to these specific stages of, of production, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we've all heard this kind of thing, oh, they'll fix that in mastering. (laughs) But but, but having the mindset of record like there is no mixing, right, and mix like there is no mastering, right? So trying to leave hopefully as few headaches for somebody like you, Ruben, and then you can jump in at a higher level type of thing and do the thing you do and take it to a whole different place as opposed to having to fix a bunch of issues instead of just making it better, right?
2: Certainly. Well, you know, I said this a, a little bit ago where, you know, you can't do one thing without affecting everything. Yeah. Right. You know, so if you have something to fix, your attention is now kind of being drawn towards that, whereas it might not have to be in a situation where you don't have to do that. In other words, you're going to get more from us from me or our process if we don't have to do that so much and usually if that's the case it's so easy to just get mixing engineer on the phone and say hey your snare is very loud (laughs) (laughs) or something like that or your vocals buried in the mix and I'm having to pull out this vocal but along with the vocal something else and if you give me a vocal up it's going to be so much better so you know if I end up having that inner dialogue as I'm working that I'm having to kind of dig something out I'll usually just get somebody on the phone or write an email and it's so easy to recall anything these days. It's not like it used to be, you know, where you have to reprint a tape or something like that. So Sure. Uh,
0: Real quick there, yeah. you mentioned something about getting a vocal up. Now, mm-hmm. most people don't even think about the various outputs that they can do on a particular mix. As I set up a mix template that actually has seven different outputs all at once, where uh-huh. there's a vocal up, there's a vocal down, there's the actual mix, there's an instrumental, acapella, lead only, and background only kind of thing. Um, When you mention give me a vocal up, is that the kind of thing you say, hey, maybe if you give me the vocal up mix, that would be a better mastering job? Or is that you're going to blend that in somehow?
2: Well, first off, that sounds like a very efficient Pro Tools session template you have. I do.
0: (laughs) It is, well, it saves me seven times the Uh, amount of exports because it does it all at once.
2: That's probably very valuable for a lot of people. That's great. So a vocal up with just one dB up without any type of approaching it with Trying to create a vocal up is one thing. Mm-hmm. If the vocal seems buried, and your mastering engineer calls you and says, "Hey, you know, I'm trying to dig out the vocal, but if you gave me a vocal up, it would be better." Sometimes it's just a straight, straight one dB or a seven tenth d, de- you know, seven tenth of a dB up, and you can just literally raise it up and print it. But probably what's better is to look at it again and weave it in again, you know, most likely. Of course, because because mm-hmm. then instead of just a, just a blank one dB up, then the mixing engineer is putting back their mixing engineer cap. And along with that vocal, they might have to readjust this or that to massage things into place, and and then we kind of relook at it. And it's not going to be the same setting with the vocals now up. It's going to be now I'm going to relate to this new thing sure. where it, and position what I'm positioning based off what's being fed. That's again a musical approach versus right. a I don't know a clinical form. approach. <laughs> yes, certainly.
1: Uh, one thing I, I wanted to ask you as well, and this kind of leads into it, I think. I'm assuming that most of the time you get delivered a stereo mix for you to master do you guys ever get delivered or prefer perhaps to, to avoid some of the issues we're just talking about to do to simply get stems from and i'm, I'm talking actual stems here not multitracks but if you get like stems mm-hmm. so that you can do those slight adjustments during the mastering stage or is that less common
2: for you it's it's less common it's also a little bit of a different mindset mm-hmm. if i am working with stems first thing is I have to know if, if there was anything on the bus that these stems don't represent. Because if you part out stems, yeah, you yeah, most yeah. cases have to bypass your bus. Your bus is acting on something that's being summed. When you part them out, you're summing based off only those grouped stems. Maybe you have a drum stem, hypothetically, or maybe right. you have this or that, but you're still parting it out and you're eliminating that bus. So if you're mixing into something on the bus, best thing to do would be recreating that here in the Pro Tools session. It's also a different mindset. To work from balancing stems while you're balancing it globally so you kind of have to shift gears and be in two places at once and it's it's not something that i prefer to do usually i prefer to have a mix being committed to and then i'm, I'm really just mastering I'm, I'm putting on that hat and i'm able to uh, just provide something so much better at the, in that place
1: right now because I've, I've heard people that that like to get mixes just that way right whether yes. they're processed or not and you basically just put in the fader up to unity and that was the intention of the mix, right? But I can see how that would, again, open up just a completely different can of worms for you because, again, they're like, you mentioned bus processing where, well, yeah, you might run the same processing on each bus when you're bouncing them out, but now- But it won't affect the same way. Exactly, because now it's like, well, now the drums are not present, so the compression is hitting differently or or what have you. So
2: There is a little- cheat around that and to have all your compression being side-chained off a fold down off to the side. So in other words, your, your individual stems are being processed as though they were summing even though they're not. Right. And that is the beginning to a solution for mastering with the absence of a bus, thus object-based formats. Uh, and, that, and I could talk a lot about that too, because I actually developed a solution for mastering in Atmos as though you have a bus, but with the absence of a bus, which is basically just that. Um, And it has to do with multiple layers of folding something down to mono and having all your dynamic processes being keyed off and sidechain off that mono fold down, maintaining correlation as though they were on a bus. And you can do this in series. In other words, compress into compression and have all of that work as though it was on a bus, even though it's not.
0: That sounds very much like my crazy template for seven outputs at once.
2: (laughs) Yeah, in a sense it is. It's like kind of uh, thinking at the very end and working backwards so you can part everything out as though... Right. So anyway, uh, there are ways around it. Best case scenario, mix it, be confident in your mix, feel good about your mix, <laughs> give it to a mastering engineer, have them be a mastering engineer. That's always the best way. Right. Try to have a mastering engineer be somewhat of a mixing engineer usually is because the mixing engineer is not very, feeling a little bit insecure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're already at a place of where you're kind of losing to begin with if you're in that place. So hopefully you're yeah. not in that place. And you know, the way I would approach that situation is I would listen to the mix, I'd throw it up on the board, I get them on the phone. I'd say, "Hey, if you do this, that, and the other, you'll probably end up with something better." Then they send that, and we work that way. And oh, yeah. you know, that's a different type of situ- that's a different type of dynamic. That's not just a traditional hire me for a mastering a record. That's almost mixed consult. Let's get this better. And sometimes there's time and budget for that. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes it's, "Hey, this is really good, but call this person. They'll help you along the way, and then send it to me. We can do that too." So, all of that happens.
0: But. In terms of trends in mastering, you briefly just mentioned Dolby Atmos. And mm-hmm. I know that uh, a month or so ago, I actually emailed Gavin about 360RA. Are you familiar with that one as well? or
2: 360RA, a different format?
0: It's the Sony version of Dolby Atmos. So oh, yeah. Speak. Sony
2: 360? Yeah. So
0: sure. the reason why I was asking about that from Gavin, and I would assume it would probably also fall in your lap, is that... I'm about to be producing a couple of artists that are going to be promoted through that. Mm-hmm. So, Gavin's response, and I don't know if it would fall in line with yours, is that there isn't that much Dolby Atmos work really going. Is that true, or?
2: Oh, there, there is. Maybe he said something different. Um, there's certainly a lot of people doing it. I'm not sure how many, how much demand there is out there yet for it. Right. I don't I know. I think that, that was the, more they, his
0: point: is that the demand is not super heavy yet.
2: They're not that there because people don't really understand. They don't understand what it is yet. They don't understand why they they should have it yet. Right. There, and there's a lot. There's just a lot of confusion altogether. There's also a lot of repurposed records to kind of lead the charge that were never produced for Atmos. They were produced for stereo. They were right. thought. At, the ideas behind them were constructed for stereo, and then they're being reimagined. Another thing. Another non-straight line. Exactly. Musically. and, and you know, we've actually when,
0: talked about this on the podcast.
2: This is music. You know, it's 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 a musical idea. You throw it up on a canvas, and everything in in line has to do with everything in line. And unless you're, and of course, it's it's arrangement dependent. You could probably, you know, maybe like a Radiohead type of arrangement. You know, where you have all these different elements that are unworldly, and what is that even? You know, and right. you can have all of that live and and swirl around you musically, and maybe that would be a little more conducive than, you know, a three piece rock band where you have very limited elements and traditionally we have we have an expectation to have that be spread out on stage in front of you. All of that goes into this. But I found that if somebody approaches an Atmos mix and they're painting on that canvas and they're being creative in that state and they're producing for the format itself, it yields a completely different end result because you're imagining it from the beginning with that in mind and it all just follows suit. So those productions are Are very special and and i think that this is just budding technology and it's only going to get better so well that you
0: said do you think listening to something that's originally designed for stereo trying to be reimagined for dolby compared to something that was made now strictly for dolby and folds down into stereo which sounds better in the dolby world to you or the 360 concept to you
2: I think like kind of what I was saying, you know, if, if your intention to paint on this canvas, if you will, is that way from the beginning, it's probably by concepts going to end up in a, in a better place because it's a straight shot there. Sure. It doesn't mean that it can't work the other way, but it's very much, I find, arrangement dependent, you know, in the intent of the music. Some arrangements are more conducive to the format than others. You know, we're doing a lot of stuff for, you know, Netflix and stuff that maybe even even mixed in, in a channel-based immersive format, 714. It's already been imagined for immersive, and we can take that and then atmosize it in a way. You know, oh, wow. render it, okay. render it for Atmos, and uh, there is that too. So, or or somebody will remix it, you know, for Atmos because it's uh, it's already in a large way kind of been thought to be immersive in terms of its musicality.
0: Excuse me, one cool. second. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna other trends that are coming up in mastering and, and maybe shifting because there was a period of time where we denote them as called the loudness wars. What is currently going on in that regard with mastering and mixes? What do you see as a trend happening now?
2: Yeah. Well, the streaming platforms have really put a nail in the coffin for the loudness wars. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was, it's a good thing. You know, it's funny. When I, when I started out, or even before I started, even stepped a foot into, into the mastering lab, I, I was at MI. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be somebody that makes loud records. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea that. to me. I actually thought that. I thought maybe I'll be one of these people that leans a little more loud, because why wouldn't you think that? Right. (laughs) I (laughs) want to be heard. I (laughs) thought I was going to be a really fast (laughs) guitar player, too, but here we are. (laughs) And then you get educated, and you realize that loudness is as much a part of the musicality as anything else, and really what it comes down to is density. Yeah. Loudness is density, because if you're dealing with a summed mix, you can even look at the waveform, and it has its peaks and valleys. And if you squeeze down those peaks, you have something denser which leaves you headroom to then raise it back up so if you're working up against digital zero and you have a denser end result either happening in the mix or with what we do to densify things further musically the more dense something is the more loud it would, will be now density has everything to do with the musicality and to over densify something in our stage that it hasn't been mixed for you're going to start hearing the processing before the music and that should be an indication of uh, or can be an indication of how far to go before you start wanting to stop. Becoming sensitive to that point and really keying in on, it, on that has to do with the limitations of how far you can push something based off the dynamic range of the mix at hand or groups of mixes at hand. Sometimes you have to find a, a common denominator and a, a good mastering engineer will be able to deliver that in a way that has no compromises most of the time and i could talk a little bit about that too because sometimes you're dealing with a very dense pop arrangement that has to live on the same release as a very open wide dynamics orchestral score this is very common disney movies have this all the time real orchestra done by the best of the best and you have a top 40 artist and all has to live on the same canvas what do you do in that scenario so a good mastering engineer will be able to deliver something that has no compromises on either so yes, the loudness wars really had to do with, and this probably peaked, I don't know, around 2008 or nine or something like that, where everybody was really trying to out loud each other. Not everybody, but a lot of people were. We were, never, we were never doing that. We always put music first, and we developed that reputation and trust. It was actually not even developed. It was just maintaining that reputation and trust, because that is the way we... Approached records and it's not that we didn't make things loud But we made things loud musically or as loud as they musically wanted to be if that's what we were trying to achieve musically doesn't mean that we should make everything as loud and push it to maximum because loudness has a sound based off the density Of course you can lean a little bit more that way and you might need to compress musically a little bit more that way If that's what you're trying to go for or if that's where you're feeling that it's pulling you or that's the intent or you can relax it a little bit and you can end up in a, in re- and realize something in a slightly more relaxed, gentler place, which opens up all of this textural feel and I suppose tonality that wouldn't be available to you if you try to juice it too much. Mm-hmm. So it's really a musical choice. And the good news is, is that it all will fly because you don't need to try to be the loudest thing in the world because, well, you never did to begin with, but you really don't now because of the streaming platforms, lowering everything to a lower common denominator, usually around minus 13 LUFS. Yeah, that is a uh, measurement based off an average level right, uh, over LUFS a time duration. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not something that, you know, you can have something measure at a certain place and sound louder and you can have something measure at a different place and it sounds and it, and it measures louder, but sounds lower. It really has to do with the arrangement and the density and how much bottom end there is you know, and what the information is doing to trick that meter. So there is measured level and then there's perceived level. It's all of that together. So you can have something that is at hitting at LUFS minus eight and it lives just fine next to something that is living at minus LUFS 11 and then also minus LUFS seven. And they can all sound perception wise at the proper level, but they're all measuring at that place. So that exists as well. So that's why this is very much a human process. Right. Uh, so still. a
0: question about the streaming services here, because I think it is technically known that Spotify lives at minus 14 and Apple lives at minus 16. How do you deal mm-hmm. with that in a, in a particular master? Because they're, they, they're set for their automatic adjustments. They're going to move to that level on yes. their software. So, so how do you work that?
2: So the way to work that is to not worry about it actually so much because you're, you're certainly not going to be aiming for that level. You have to have a one-size-fits-all, uh-huh. and it could be, and it has already, that these platforms are changing their specs halfway through their release of these specs. You mm-hmm. know, they're not going to necessarily stay at that level. And all it is, is is a normalization downward. You're literally taking the output and just turning it digitally down. Right. So uh-huh. as let's say everybody's de- dealing, it, whether you're going to a professional mastering house or you're working in Pro Tools or a Garage Band in your bedroom, everybody's dealing with digital zero if they're working in a DAW. And it's the same for everybody. Digital zero is digital zero. doesn't matter where you go. And if you're working up against digital zero at true zero and you're pushing your level up against your dynamic processes and mastering and you have a limiter at the very end and you work backwards from there and you're pushing up level and essentially you're densifying until you don't want to push up anymore. You kind of relax it. You kind of find you narrowing in on you're finding the sweet spot in this place and now you're mastering it and you're mastering it through time, meaning that it's not just one setting necessarily and forgetting it. You're weaving all of that together in real time. You're EQing, you're writing section to section in, and now you're happy. You've printed it. You don't want to print it again. You're feeling really good about this and it's up to level. It feels at the appropriate level for the mix. That is when you can say you're done and let the platforms do what they do. If they lower something, that's fine because your musicality is baked in there and committed to. So if they lower it, that all exists there. You can turn it back up with your volume knob and it's going to translate. What you don't want to do is push something further than where it wants to be pushed, mix wise, in the mastering stage. If you want to come up with something that's more hyped, don't lean on the mastering stage, lean on the mixing stage and have somebody then reapproach it in mastering. And that's the best way to do it. If you try to choke something or try to mangle something into a finished place in the mastering stage, you're approaching it from a place of compromise because. And now more than ever, because what's gonna happen is you've over densified something, and now you're starting to hear the processing instead of the music first a little bit, or you're aware of the processing, and it's being lowered anyway. So let's say you've got a dB extra level that you didn't want. It's now being lowered an extra dB on the platforms. You're ending up with a louder, smaller end result.
0: Or a flatter mix for that matter.
2: a, no- a less musical, a, a musically compromised, smaller, more processed sounding end result that, is not gonna sound as big on the platforms either. And here's the other thing, even if the platforms didn't exist, you take a project that's been mastered, I don't know, kind of maybe not so great and kind of forced, you have a human being turning it down on their dial in the car (laughs) while they're listening. So, which is the worst thing that you want because they don't know where to put this thing. It's like, it's coming out of the speakers and it's abrasive and it's feeling processed. So they turn it down figuring that maybe that'll be it. And now it just feels like it's smaller and they're in between. So an overprocessed record ends up having nowhere to live in terms of level when there's not a connection musically. And so that's the biggest downfall of an overhyped record is that people just turn it down. Yeah.
1: And who wants that? <laughs> nobody wants yeah, that. Nobody wants that. But it's
2: not a, this yeah. is not a problem. Level is just not a problem because, you're, again, you're dealing. if you want to go for this hyped thing and you want to go for Larger Than Life and this big, expansive, exciting sound, you can do that. And you can narrow in on that place. And in best case scenario, you don't have to force anything to do that. Because if you start forcing something, you're already, you're going to be kind of listening to that force. If it just falls into place and it it's mixed for that, those are the mixes that are always going to light up the room and fill the whole space. Sure. Yeah. And that's, that's what I you think want that, anyway.
1: that's something too that deserves to be mentioned again. But I think, you know, we're talking about the whole stages of everything, right? If you want to have a track that has that impact... That doesn't start and end with a mastering it, it the whole process, right so you have to take into consideration arrangements and mixing and all that kind of stuff, and only then will you be able to i think arrive at a result where you get that right
2: certainly I mean yeah. even so something is something so simple as your really punchy elements being mono, you know mm-hmm. just something like that if you have especially if working on hip hop or EDM or any of these more aggressive type virtual type of arrangements. Mm-hmm. If you have your 808s and your kicks and your snares mono, you have double the signal coming out of both speakers at the same time. Hmm. Versus something that's not completely mono, then then you have a little less of double the signal coming out of the speakers at the same time. Something as simple as that has a lot to do with how much loudness you end up with or size. So all of these things matter. You're dealing with a product that has its own signature thumbprint and it's every project, every arrangement, every production is unique to its own self.
0: Here's a yeah. selfish question for you. You've worked on a lot of projects. What would be your favorite project that you've ever done?
2: I don't have a favorite, though. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of ones that stick out. I, I, you know, for me, it's not so much about that because here's the thing any favorite record I'll listen to for two weeks straight and I won't want to listen to it for a while. (laughs) And then, and then a year goes by and I'll just, I'll be listening to it again. You know, do you ever listen
0: to something like that in that regard and and put it away for a long time, go back, listen to it and go, damn, I did a pretty good job with that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, sir. I mean, I can, that's, that's the beauty of it is that you have this whole catalog of stuff that you worked on. and. And you know, it doesn't have to be stuff that I've worked on either. I enjoy records that other people that I, I listen to records that Gavin works on. He listens to records that I work on or my other colleagues. So I do love listening to music. I get a lot of music in my world every day working on new music. Of course. But uh, in terms of favorite records, I there's so many, I mean, there's orchestral scores, there's bands, there's artists, there's, you know, reissue work, there's, ev- there's, we work on a different album or more every single day, five days a week, lots of weekends as well, 16 years in. I mean, there's so much music. So yeah, I have my favorite albums that I go to and stuff like that, but it's really just the process of doing this every day. That is the, is the appeal more than, Hey, I've, I've got all these records that I'm proud that I worked on.
0: Sure. Uh, okay. So let yeah. me refine the question a little bit. What are you listening to constantly right now? <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's funny. I listen to a lot of podcasts cause I have so much music in my world, you know? Uh, so I end up listening to podcasts on the way to and from work, but I do love working on orchestral music. I, I think, I end, uh, I don't know, maybe in the last five or six years, I listened to a lot of film scores. I've always loved film scores. I've always loved orchestra. I'm listening to, but I listen to you know I work on r and b records and hip hop records and metal records and jazz records. so I, I, you know that, that's one thing that this work has I love every single genre of music. I, I find that I am attracted to anything that's musically beautiful. doesn't matter the genre I'll, I'll be drawn to it so. I work on everything. And, that, and that's something that this job has opened me to.
1: Right on. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. So what do you think, Jody? Should we try to let him go here and end up with those three questions that we'd like to ask? Or is there anything else that you would like to do before we move into that? Well, let's ask the
0: three questions and then let's see if we can get him in for a Friday find.
1: okay let's do that so these are three questions that that I mentioned Ruben that we ask everybody and uh, the first one is what's your favorite piece of gear that you can't live without
2: (laughs) I guess it's the speakers it's probably these speakers because they tell you everything you know and without 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 that that, these are ATC 150s Mm -hmm. and that the only speaker I've ever really used I've been using them the whole time and I'm very fussy when it comes to balancing speakers in a room, you know? In other words, if we, if we moved or something like that, I'd, I'd be very fussy for quite a long time until I feel really good. <laughs> uh, I've gotten quite, we moved about six or something years ago, and it takes a little bit of time to acclimatize. We had another studio, thankfully, at the time to transition through that. Wait, so but you're not in the, the sp-
0: location that I came and sat with you when I had a particular mix mastered by you?
2: That could, that might've been in Hollywood. Was that in Hollywood? Yeah. Was that well, in no, North that was in Hollywood? Hollywood.
0: I'm thinking, was it off of Magnolia? No. Um, okay.
2: So you were here. So yeah, we've been, this is in Burbank. We've been here about six or some, seven years now. And we were, we we're about six years. Oh, so we were in I Hollywood before location, that. For
0: a, so that was the location yeah. in Burbank, right?
2: Yes. Yes. So okay. we're, we've been here this that long. And then before that we were in Hollywood about 10 years. But yeah, the room, the speakers, your porthole to balance. I do
0: have another nerdy question about the speakers and the setup. You say you're you're usually, if you move a situation, which hopefully isn't all that often, you get very fussy. And is part of that fussiness, like the phasing issues that might happen? And how do you correct for that?
2: You know, there's no perfect room Uh and there's no perfect environment. And it's also somewhat subjective. We like to darken these speakers, Gavin and I very much are not into a very bright tweeter. We like to, and it's just based pretty much just probably just being used to what we were used to or what Gavin was used to back at the mastering lab. Uh And then tuning the room in Hollywood based off being more familiar with that. And then I've kind of fallen into that over, you know just been acclimatized to that. So in terms of phase issues, orientation of where you place the speakers in the room, where you're sitting in the room, what is, you know, if you have a, a null point in the room where that's every room has a null point, so dealing with that, using absorption panels, diffusion panels, all of the things that you do, bass traps, to work with uh, your room and how you integrate all of that. I find it to be a human process and a technical process. I think the best way to go about it is doing sweeps, measuring your room, having those sweeps back up what you're hearing and using your ears to fine tune and fine tune until you feel like you don't want to change it. And then and then the process of acclimatizing to that, which usually takes a few weeks at the minimum. Sure. Listening to a whole lot, putting your hands on the board, watching how you relate, seeing what your hands do intuitively and seeing if that makes sense. All of that, if it all balances out. In other words, are you EQing for the music or are you EQing for the room? Mm-hmm. You know, making sure that your room is telling you the truth. Um, usually that takes a little, you know, a few weeks or so. And then We say, okay, now we're ready to work and we can start working on material. We always want to have a plan in place. In other words, if we do move, we have one room that doesn't move. We do all our professional work that way until we feel confident that we can use the new room for real work. Yeah, so there's that, we have to have that.
0: Here's our second question for you. What is the biggest lesson you've learned so far to date?
2: To not think too much, not get into your head, not second guess yourself, Put yourself in a place of where you can be open to the music and trust yourself to show up every day. And, and if you're not feeling it, maybe take a break and then show up in an hour. <laughs> you know. Uh, in other words, um, just, just try to live and, and be connected to the music and lead from that place. So much of this working on music is intimidating to a lot of people. It comes with a whole lot of insecurity that then comes with overcompensating for that and people coming in feeling like they're their shit don't stink even though they know it kind of <laughs> does. There's a whole lot of that, you know, and put that all aside. We're working on music. It's such a amazing thing that we're able to work on music. Take your, this is what I'm bringing to the table, out of the equation. Being fortunate enough to be able to have this stuff come through you so you can show up every day and bring that to the table and then move on to the next one. That's what it's all about. I don't know. I think maybe the biggest thing that I've learned is to EQ myself as I'm EQing the music. In other words allowing myself to not get in my own head and just always remember to try to connect with the music. If I'm in that place, it's very hard to miss actually. It's kind of like you can't miss. It's like, you know, when you're playing guitar and the mics are being set up and you're playing it for a few times and you're feeling it, you can't miss. But now when you're on take 40 and you're all inside your head and you're trying to (laughs) nail it, you're never gonna nail it. You You nailed it on take one while the mics were being set up. So that is as much a part of this process is developing that intuition and exercising that like a muscle and being confident in that so you can show up in that place every day versus using your brain and having to rely on that. Of course, when you're learning this, you have to use your brain until you can, like learning an instrument, you learn all the scales, you learn music theory, you lodge that and you put it in your back pocket, you pull it out when you need it, but you're going to do your best work if you're just going off your musical intuition. And that's what this is, just like mixing or mastering if you lead from that place. Anyway, that's what I found. And I find that that translates to anything artistic at all. If you're in this second guessing artist phase, you're probably not in your true form. If you're in your direct connective in the flow state phase, it's very hard to miss. And to try to get that every day is the task at hand. Yes. Yeah.
1: All right, so the last question here, and you've almost kind of maybe answered it already, but what's the piece of advice that you universally give when somebody asks you for advice?
2: Well, that's a really broad question. (laughs)
1: It <laughs> it is a very broad let's make question. it musically
0: like, speaking into the mastering. Yeah, world.
1: Mu- music. Yeah, let's say for for your world when when it comes to music, or let's say that somebody wants to be the next Ruben Cohen. Ruben Cohen, right? What would you advise that person
2: to do to be a be, mastering engineer, or to
1: yeah, yeah, let's just go with mastering. Yeah.
2: Well, it's a tricky thing because best case scenario, you can learn from somebody that really has done it for a long, long time. If you can fi- find that, and that's a very rare unique, privileged position to mm-hmm. be in. It's so rare. If you can find that, that's your best bet. Then like I was saying, you know, you're know, you standing on those shoulders and you're really learning from somebody that really knows. And But if that's not available to you, it doesn't mean that you can't teach yourself and learn along the way. I mean, most of what you're gonna learn in this is staying up really late at night and proving things to yourself that only you're gonna ever really understand through doing it. You know, I was talking to somebody that was young the other day, and They said, don't I need to go to school and I don't learn from this. And, you know, and yes, that would be all great. But most of what you end up learning is just by doing it and doing it by yourself. And you're going to learn things at midnight and that's going to forever impact your career moving forward. And the only way to get there is by putting that time. So I feel like as long as you keep showing up and even if you don't notice yourself improving, if you're still doing it, if you still just keep showing up and do it every day and you find that consistency, like anything else, like playing an instrument, like being in business, like doing anything at all. You're going to refine your abilities and you're going to start realizing the subtleties of things and becoming more sensitive to the subtleties of things. And through that, you develop your sensibilities and your ways about going about it. And it, you're, you keep on growing. There's many aspects to this job. It's not just a musical job. It's a job of being in service. It's a job of making sure that you stay on budget and deadline and uh, keeping confidence and trust with your clients. All of that comes into this. We spent a lot of time talking about the musical and technical aspect of this, but being of service so that you can perpetuate this ever-going freight train. <laughs> that yeah. a lot of people are on board. It's not, you know, we we have a small team here. A lot of people depend on Gavin and I to EQ the music. We have managers, we have production editors, you know, we're all in this on this train together. And all our clients that depend on us as well, you know, mixing engineers producers, artists that have worked with us for a long, long, long time, they expect to something of us. We have to, you know, it's all unspoken. They just know that if they make the call, we're going to be ready to deliver. And they know that they don't have to communicate anything to us. They just know we're there for them. That has everything to do with being in business just as much as being able to make something sound good. So that goes with this too, is understanding all of that. You know, that's, that's all part of it too.
0: Fantastic.
1: Absolutely. Well, All I right. think on that note, we are going to thank you for your time here. It's been wonderful to talk to you, wonderful to meet you. Lots of wisdom there. So thank you for giving us this time. I really yeah, appreciate
2: it. Likewise. Thank you both. This was great. I really enjoyed it. Yeah.
1: Well, and if you uh, want to stick around, it's time for our Friday
0: Finds. Chris, are you ready to do this because of the fact you've got a hammer going above your head? What the hell?
1: Yeah, there's some construction going on here. I don't know what, what the heck it is, but please disregard the man behind the curtain. All right. no. So maybe we should, we should say to Ruben first what, what our Friday finds is. It. It's basically something that we've discovered through the week that's added some kind of value into whatever we do. And uh, for me, it is an artist this week, actually a musical, an album where this artist, Venus Theory, goes by, has an album called Motions and Echoes. And I've been on a trip lately with, I like more ambient, sort of soundscape kind of almost like underscore type of stuff. So that has to be my Friday find for this week. It's Venus Theory and Motions and Echoes.
0: What about right. you, Jody? My Friday find this week actually comes from the Waves Corporation, They've just released a brand new plugin called Harmonize, which allows you to apparently do up to eight voices of harmonization on vocals in real time and make it sound like eight different people rather than the same person being sent through a harmonizer. That is my understanding of the plugin. They're doing an introductory offer. Of course, they say that it's eventually going to be like $149, but my guess is, is that it will end up on their $29 list at some point in the future, <laughs> as, it, as they usually tend to do. That would be my Friday find of this week. How about you, Ruben? Do you got something new?
2: Okay. You know, I, I mentioned this this analog piece, this uh, Overstayer MAS harmonic enhancer. Yes. No. And I recently used the plug-in version of it on a uh, 714 score on a couple cues, and it did something very similar to what I used the analog Uh, So it's that Overstayer M-A-S. And I think if you just type in that in Google and find the plugin. Can you uh, spell out
0: Overstayer? Because that sounds like a complicated word. (laughs) Yeah.
2: It's like over, S-T-A-Y-E-R. Like over and stayer. Oh, Overstayer.
0: Gotcha. I thought you were saying over.
2: No, Overstayer. And they make very cool, unique pieces that just offer something that I don't think anything really quite offers. So it's very cool. But (laughs) you can have it digitally too. And it it basically does what, what you'd expect it to do. So I'll be using that from time to time too, especially if I'm working outside of stereo.
0: Rock on. Very cool. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. You'll get weekly reminders about the Tuesday tips when they come out and we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of the podcast. Send us an email at GoldStar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the name Ruben and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page, and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. And with that, I'll say, see you next
1: week. Thank you, Ruben. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good one, Jody. Thank you, Chris and Jody.
2: Take care.